The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by the power of our wonderful Patreon supporters. You can check out the Secret Library Podcast Club over at patreon.com slash secret library, where you can get bonus solo episodes with me, as well as the opportunity to submit questions for bonus Q&A episodes every month. This is episode 148 of the Secret Library Podcast. My guest this week is Saskia Vogel, who was born and raised in Los Angeles and now lives in its sister city, Berlin, where she works as a writer and Swedish to English literary translator. Her debut novel, Permission, is out now and is being adapted for television. Previously, she worked as Granta Magazine's global publicist and as an editor at the AVN Media Network, where she reported on pornography and adult pleasure products. She volunteers her time as the Honorary Secretary of CELTA and is part of the team that organizes Viva Erotica, an annual film festival in Helsinki that explores the art, history, and culture of sex on film. So... I was really, really pumped to have Saskia on the show. And I honestly think we could have talked for another two to three hours after we stopped recording. Um, Thankfully, she does live in Berlin, so I think we can get her back pretty easily. And I know you're going to want to hear from her again. Um, We really dove into the topic that is taboo. And in particular, the need to explore representation of fringe culture and what it means to bring something like BDSM into the context of a literary novel. So to be clear, this episode is not one that deserves an E on it um, because it's not... It's not the semantics of kind of the sex scene that we're talking about. It's more who gets included, what kinds of characters, what you're allowed to go into and what you're allowed to explore and and what kind of gets you relegated to a different section of the bookstore. Um, It was really enlightening to talk about this, to talk about the source, um, the source material and life experience for Saskia of the novel Permission and and what drove her in creating incredibly human characters um, that happen to be involved in a world that many of us don't encounter every day. So in many ways, that's what literature is about, in my opinion, is being exposed to experiences different than our own and learning from them. So our conversation really goes into how um, sexuality can be a driving force in a novel and in different ways than you might think. So I think this will be kind of an aha episode as it was for me to record. And again, I'm sure this is going to be part of a longer conversation that we bring back in the future. I'm really, really excited to show this episode with you. Here we go with Saskia Vogel. Hey, Saskia, thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Caroline, thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm I'm already thinking it's going to be difficult to cover everything that I think we could talk about connected to your book and, and to your, the writing of permission. Um, but I, I think we should we'll, we'll take a stab at it and see how much we can cover. And if you have to come back, you have to come back. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> so one of the things that was really exciting to me is that although we have talked about writing sex scenes per se um, on the show before, we haven't talked about, in in a sense, the, the idea of taboo and incorporating sort of real human looks at 
aspects of life that are sometimes, I think, relegated to genre fiction or particular, you know, like, oh, you can read erotica to get that. If you're mm -hmm. interested in BDSM, then you can read in these books over here in this section. But bringing concepts that are, are commonly considered taboo into the literary fiction area is is something that fascinates me. And I'm just interested in the kinds of questions you asked yourself as you started to think about bringing Orly and, and Piggy and their world into literary fiction. Gosh, I mean, that was such a long process. And um, I guess it started... Oh, like in 2003 or four, when I moved back to LA and, um, one of my best friends was living in a shared house with a bunch of people that were really intimately involved in the BDSM scene in Los Angeles. And that kind of, they became my friends in my primary social circle, um, in those years that I was living back home in LA. And one of the things that came up a lot, um, was, you know, like there was one dominatrix that I knew that felt extremely burned by the media. She had given an interview and it was cut to pieces or something and she ended up feeling really misrepresented. And I suppose this idea of misrepresentation was something that's really stuck with me um, as the stories of my friends stuck with me and stuck out to me as like being just really remarkable examples of negotiating kind of life, love and sex, um, from the fringes, but also of course needing to maintain, you know, a regular life with regular jobs in some cases. And in some cases, a life lived totally in the, in the sort of space of like the, the kink world or the fetish community. Um, yeah. I haven't answered your question yet. No, but this is great <laughs> context. And it was a really large question. So right. I guess I can refine it a little bit in saying that I think just deciding to do it is the first way and say, you know, there is room for things that have formerly lived in other parts of the bookstore to come into the mm -hmm. literary area. And I guess I'm wondering where, where did the characters first start to appear for you and you to feel like, okay, I need to write this particular story? So, I mean, for, for a little while I was working as, um, gosh, I was working as an editor at adult video news and, um, there were a lot of books that came in for review, um, how to books about sex. I would sometimes get, um, books from sort of pornography studies de departments at universities. And there was a sort of, there was a sort of a type of sex writing that I, I could see, okay, if this, if this wasn't, if I wanted to tell a story around this BDSM community, here were some very set ways to do it. You know, I could write a sort of how-to book. I could like pull a gay to lease and go thy neighbor's wife on it. Um, I could write it as a certain kind of like reportage, but who did I want to reach? And, um, I was doing a, a an MFA at the university of Southern California, um, that has since moved to, I think the Vermont college of fine arts. Um, and you know, I was like 23 and writing about, uh, you know, writing very, you know, I guess, 
kinky stories in a very serious and kind of earnest way. And I would get the question like, but why would anybody, why would anybody actually want this? And isn't this abuse? And somehow it clicked for me. And I was like, ah, you are my, you are the readers who I want to reach. I want to write a story for people who maybe have absolutely no relationship or no interest in the subject matter, but who have an interest in kind of like love and desire. And um, in a way, I wanted the book to kind of demystify a topic that is often written about with a lot of mystery or a lot of aesthetic. Um, but I wanted to take a sort of really serious and kind of human look at motivations and need and desire and belonging. And so um, the book started out as was the book that I wrote first was just a, not a very good piece of reportage, essentially just telling the stories of my friends. Um, I, I just wasn't really very equipped at the time, I think, to write meaningful nonfiction. Um, and I just sat for ages with these stories and they wouldn't leave me alone. And the story still felt like I still felt like I wanted to tell this story, something about this community, something about the way um, sex was negotiated, consent, you know, an awareness of power dynamics, like these things never left me. And eventually all the other characters sort of fell away and I was left with Orly and Piggy um, as the kind of two people that I felt, I mean, Orly and Piggy being composites of many impressions and lots of reading over the years, but also a lot of interviews that I had conducted and people I had known. But sort of those two kind of stayed with me the longest and they kind of just appeared one day. I don't actually remember their genesis particularly, only that kind of these two, this sort of, this network of stories around a certain kind of need and this network of stories around someone who um, is equipped to answer that need, to address that need, they, that kind of felt really powerful to me. And I wanted to tell a story around people who can't find or, or who, who seek essentially orally out to um, address their needs and fantasies. I love this mystery. And I have yet to find anyone who can describe the exact moment that it happens. But as you're talking about the process of kind of preparing I think of it almost in this weird gardening metaphor that there's hmm. this preparing that happens. Like there was this almost fertilizing the area with stories of all of these people and the reportage preparation. And then all of a sudden there was this shoot that came up that was Orly and Piggy. And it seems that that's characters do that. They're, they're not there. And then the next day they're just there. And yeah, we, we and don't see them in the in-between as they kind of what the seed was or whatever. They just appear. No, it's kind of like an itch, isn't it? You know, like it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't leave me be, you know? Um, Cause I had uh, maybe interviewed and written the sort of personal history of maybe 10 different people. And I don't know, everything else just kind of fell away. I mean, maybe in these characters, maybe everything that I was interested in sort of was distilled into like two potent imaginary human beings. And so at that point, it felt, it, it felt clear that it was going to be fiction instead of 
a reportage nonfiction. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I tried this is so ridiculous. I think even one draft of a chapter early on, I had written in like a, uh, a late, like a sort of Raymond Chandler noirish like detective voice. Because I mean, I was really struggling to find like the voice for this book. I mean, to, to say that I found my reader while I was at USC is is not true. Like I think I understood who I wanted to write for probably later, but it was those questions that came up that sort of like, what is this and why should I care? Um, I don't know. I think it, it gave me my mission. Like, I'm, I'm going to show you what you need to care because this is a, these are universal things. And I want you to see this community in a, in a fresh way. And like to your point about, um, you know, the other spaces where stories like this exist, you know, one of, I read, uh, what was it? Anne Rice's Sleeping Beauty trilogy, oh, yeah. way too young. <laughs> I think I did too, actually. Yeah, I think it can happen, right? It's called the Sleeping Beauty trilogy. It like, seems it's really <laughs> like, ooh, this is very glamorous, kind of fairy mm-hmm. tale. It's got pretty covers. Absolutely, yeah. And I was also super into vampires, so I was like having revelations with um, the vampire Lestat and um, interview with a vampire. Uh, it was very much my headspace when I was little, and so moving from one Anne Rice book to the next felt just like a natural move. And, um, you know, but that's a, that's a different kind of world. You know, you see the sort of dynamics and the trials, but like the title implies, it also has kind of a fairy tale like quality. And I don't know, I wanted to look at what these things are like kind of in practice, like what this means in an everyday sense. Cause I think the space of fantasy is so exciting and absurd and, um, I don't know, nonsensical sometimes, but nonetheless tantalizing. But if you're like, say, trying to explore your fantasy life, how do you actually make that happen IRL, you know? Right. That's true. I mean, I think it's it's something about the way fiction works is, and I think it's the difference between, you know, erotic fiction where everything can be over the top. And you can have a character who is responding to an abnormal circumstance, like with an over the top reaction versus in literature, Mm -hmm. I feel like this, either the person has to be having a really difficult time or an unusual experience in a totally normal situation or the reverse, like the situation has to be normal to somebody for it to work. And it was clearly, Mm -hmm. you know, interesting. Yeah, because I think if it was like shocking to Orly and shocking to Piggy and shocking to Echo, then it starts to feel like opera. And instead, when you're getting to travel inside of a situation... And you'd really be asking a lot from your reader. Right. And and yet in this, the nice balance is we have Echo for whom it is new. So we kind of can, if we're not familiar with it, we can kind of ride on her coattails as she witnesses everything. Exactly. That is that is exactly the function of the Echo character. <laughs> I mean, she's also, I guess, the person who is um, carrying a lot of the questions I had that drove me to write, you know, this book. Um, I mean, of course, she exists for a lot of reasons, but but it's, it's exactly that. It was the I, the reader really needed somebody, I think, to to take them into the world, and you know. I don't know in the long term of like Echo's life beyond the book if 
this becomes her entire lifestyle or if her connection point with the lifestyle is um, going to be primarily through Orly, but not really otherwise. But she she enters that space and she finds something valuable in it. She finds, you know, healing in sort of the practice of BDSM, which, um, you know, I think is also something that doesn't really get talked about that often. You know? Yes. I was very excited about this, actually, for a number of reasons. Um, one was that there is, I think, you know, people have a particular idea of what BDSM is. And it's, it's sort of like, you know, uh, that there's a, a certain idea that it's a lot of smacking around and that, you know, that there's maybe a certain kind of enjoyed consensual, but that it's sort of a violent thing rather than seeing a more complete kind of the emotional impact and different ways in which this can be a really healing and nurturing experience, which I think most people don't realize. And I, I thought that was really wonderful. And I wondered about the experience of writing about something that isn't necessarily always written about in this context and having this responsibility that you were holding of all these friends who were like, oh, my interviews totally misrepresented me and and feeling all of that responsibility. So it's, I'm, I'm going to get this into a question that will be answerable, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm sort of holding this idea of I think there's a lot of topics, this being a good example of one, but by no means the only one where there are niche fringe or smaller areas of experience that are grossly underrepresented in books. And so somebody who's taking a risk and including it is doing a service by opening the world to that. But there's also the risk that people are going to see that as, oh, well, that's what it's really like now. And that it's going to become yet another way that people just encapsulate something in a whole, you know, one book is like, that's the book. That's what BDSM is really about or oh. <laughs> whatever small topic. So I'm wondering how you balance the desire to bring it into the conversation without feeling, uh, you know, crippled or paralyzed by the idea of like, okay, well, I'm on a, a bit of a fringe here. You know, how can I still be creative and tell the story that I want to tell without feeling like I've got 200 people behind me going, Oh, you got to do it right. You got to do it right. Oh, maybe that's why it took me so long to write this book. I mean, I definitely <laughs> felt nervous about um, a lot of anxiety around representation and a lot of anxiety around kind of like, well, just honoring the and respecting the people who were kind enough to, you know, to like sit down with me and speak for hours about, you know, very intimate parts of their lives. Um, and gosh, I mean... Yeah, I felt really nervous about it. I've, I've since sent the book to sort of a few of the people who I feel like, you know, should see it. Um, and nobody's shouted at me yet. Which, That's a good start. Um, which is really nice. But also, you know, um, you never know how people are going to react. And I think at some point I had to take that sort of maybe like quite a callous or cruel or, or maybe emotionless decision to just say, okay, like I have spent basically the entirety of my adult life working with themes of sex and sex and sexuality in some capacity. Um, I have 
had friendships. I have done interviews. Um, I have already written a terrible book about this that I don't think should be published. Um, I, I've done my work and I'm approaching this with a desire for sort of compassion and understanding. And I love these characters. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that's going to have to be good enough. Um, but I mean, you know, in my anxious days, I'm like freaking out about it and just thinking, Oh God, I hope so-and-so doesn't send me an email and is angry about, you know, you know how it goes yep. when the other, when the other side of your brain takes over. But I, I don't know. I, I just had to, I, I stand by my intention behind this book. And I think if, if there is criticism then, um, about the sort of handling uh, about representation, then I really hope it can, I don't know that I can have like a dialogue about it, but also I'm here to listen and hear if somebody is, you know, currently writing me an angry letter. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right at this exact moment, <laughs> this moment somewhere. <laughs> I think at a certain point too, you do have to make that decision that including the topic in the narrative to the best of your ability is valuable enough to risk, you know, a negative opinion. And that a mm. negative, even a negative opinion about what you've done is more valuable than something being shut out. Yeah. Cause there's such a line. It feels like there's such a line in literature about how much sexuality is allowed to be a part of the process. And, you know, if there's too much sex in it, then it's suddenly erotica or it's suddenly pornography or it's suddenly, even though it's, it's as human, um, an experience as any other, like you can write as much as you want about death. You can write as graphically mm. as you want about murder or torture in a novel. And it's not going to get put in, you know, the forbidden room that you have to show ID to get into yet. So if funny. you include really, really frank and direct, you know, language around sex, it could, it could be sent to the, you know, the, I'm thinking Circus of Books as an LA reference, but, um, which isn't even there anymore, but, no. but it's, which was a, a store on Sunset Boulevard that had a back room and you had to, you know, go through anyway. I loved it. Yeah. No, yeah. It was, it was so great. Good. But I'm just thinking about that. Like, why do you think sex is the one that can get your book kind of kicked out in a way? Uh, it's a really good question. I mean, you know, I think we, as a society, tend to sort of put sex in, you know, a corner, I suppose, or its own sort of little hermetically sealed compartment. And um, I don't think we're really encouraged to think about sort of the whole self, you know, the sort of the erotic self as part of your, the self that also just really loves golf. <laughs> and, um, you know, has political leanings and whatever. Um, and when I was writing this book, I mean, the thing that I felt that I, um, the thing I think I was sort of most interested in was what happens if I put the sort of erotic self in the center of the narrative? Like, what if the lens through which this book is written is through desire. And, um, that's, I mean, that's definitely, that's definitely echoes 
character. She is a sensualist. She enjoys pleasure. And that is very at odds with the world around her because it is so easily misconstrued, you know, Madonna whore complexes, or does that mean she's just a slut? And I think to some people, to some people in the novel, she's just a girl who likes to have sex and is easy. And unfortunately for her, that's, that means that a lot of her um, sexual life is essentially a really bad conversation, like a one-sided conversation where she approaches with sort of real willingness to be in a sort of intimate dialogue of bodies. But she meets people who just want to bang and aren't interested in that kind of, I don't know, exchange, which is filled with knowledge and insight and, and also just pleasure, you know? Yeah. And something that's really, really present in the book, which is interesting. And I think I can see people who have preconceived notions about this, this world, um, having difficulty with it, but I think it's, I think they should, and I think they should get over it. Um, is that the sex in the book that's happening between people in the BDSM community is far more, um, conscious and, um, em empathetic and concerned with the experience of all parties mm. than the sort of vanilla quote unquote, sex that's happening kind of out in Los Angeles in the sort of that there's a there's a lack of conversation and there's a lack of awareness and there's a lack of consideration happening in those scenes and I think that there's something very interesting and important and challenging about that to show oh you think this is kind of a dark dungeon where you're just going to go in there and nobody's going to respect you or your boundaries when really this is showing how the opposite can be true. Yeah, I mean, you're really hitting on exactly the thing that was a central question, a question that just chased me around the world as I was thinking about writing this book. It's exactly that parallel that I, that I um, and that contrast that was so apparent to me um, when I was in LA in my 20s. And um, I mean, I think the landscape in literature and in general is changing since Me Too and the wild success of Cat Person, which also takes a really close look at sort of the sort of power dynamics and failures of communication at play um, in sort of a romantic erotic space. Um, you know, I think this book is coming at a time when I feel quite confident that people will understand how to read it which I'm not sure might, I, I'm not sure would have been the case um, six years ago or 10 years ago. You know, I think we're much more willing to like look at these, look at the ways in which um, our sex lives slash the entire rest of our lives are, um, you know, Im, uh, impacted and defined by sort of unspoken power plays that we're engaging in or, or power dynamics that we haven't agreed on, but somehow we're thrown into and we know these roles and we're maybe participating in them unknowingly. And what I love about this moment um, is that I think people are feeling more and more empowered to question what they have inherited and what they are given. Um, and to sort of look for new models in this case, maybe around romance and the erotic. Yeah, it's 
It never fails to strike me that there are books which, I mean, no author has ever said, I wish this took a little longer to write. But when <laughs> a book takes quite a while and there's a lot of personal investment and kind of soul searching that happens and then it shows up after a while, it always feels like that was the time it was supposed to be there. I feel like this book is sort of being placed right out there, right at the moment when everyone really needs it. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to hear you say. But I mean, you know, talking about fantasy, like, whoa, so many fantasies I had to contend with in the process of like writing this book, getting the book published. Like when I turned 30 and I hadn't, I had no manuscripts to give to anyone. And I, you know, you just have to realize that, okay, I'm not going to be like a brilliant author under 30. You know, there are all these like silent expectations that I that I didn't realize I had that crept up during this whole process. You know, what it means to be published by this person or how this should happen. And um, it was such a raw and vulnerable time having this book on submission and just in other people's hands. And it was really informative to see just how many crazy fantasies and expectations I didn't know I was secretly harboring. Like, you know, what it would mean to be an author who gets published, who has her first novel out when, when she's under 30. Why, why does that matter? Really? Right. And so I think there's a kind of, I feel like the whole process has been a lot about kind of patience. And at one point I realized that finally I had constructed my life so that I had a job that complemented my writing really well, that is literary translation, and um, a life where I have established a writing practice. And at some point, and I mean, don't get me on a bad day, because I'm sure I will be filled with despair on other occasions, but um, <laughs> like on a good day, I'm like, I have a writing practice, like whatever happens with this book, whatever happens with the next one, like I will have this writing practice as long as I care to. And, you know, of course, you know, economics might change, you know, literary translation may no longer be a viable career, like who knows what happens in the future. But the life that I have right now is the, is a writing life. And I feel really, really proud because it's kind of, it's kind of this life that I've always wanted. And hopefully also a book that is read and understood and embraced by, you know, readers. At, at least, you know what I mean? Yes. And I'm, I can feel everyone wanting to know. Sometimes they appear in my, on my shoulder. What is the writing practice that you have? Uh, what does it look in, like? <laughs> in, in my dream life, I get up and I write between like nine and noon. And then I take a luxurious two hour break. And then I do sort of, shall we say, money work in the afternoons. In, in reality, I mean, that's another fantasy, right? That I had to dismantle. Like I'm not that kind of writer. Like yeah, you're I, wearing like a silk kimono during that time. I feel like if I'm doing that kind of schedule, I'm in like a really attractive Georgia Keith feeling kimono <laughs> with, you know, really nice tea and a whole thing. I, when I was at USC, I used to um, sit in my little bachelor apartment in Westwood in a pink kimono that I had when I was little that I actually had when I was getting my, my appendix out when I was little. So, and I remember blood spattering on it because oh. the, 
the IV came out or something. So this like, it had like a faint splatter of blood on it that I'd sit there in this silk pink kimono covered in butterflies and like a little slip and lipstick and I would type. And I was like, this is, this is it. I am a writer now. So, I mean, kimono was definitely part of my fantasy. now I think it's it's definitely more uh, yoga wear. I, mm. I'm much more leggings leggings person now. But um, I, I find that I I tend to work in concentrated fits, and if I have one or two good writing days, it's hard to have a third. Mm. And I think you know, and it's classic, right? I haven't really been writing anything long form in a while. Like I've been working on short essays and things around sort of pre-publication stuff for the book. Um, but I just, I don't know. I, I, I write when I can and I set time aside for it. But if, yeah, but if I'm having a really good writing day, I, I sometimes need to take like a week and not do anything and just do other things. Yep. Um, sometimes so, it feels really empty after you get it all out. It's like there's no juice left. Yeah. And it's also, I don't know, I feel like the brain needs to recover you know, because it's such a particular kind of concentration. But the last third of this book, I wrote in like downstairs in my parents' house over a three-week period, or my dad's house in LA. And um, I mean, that was just like a punishing schedule of getting to the end because my agent was like, come on, your book is late. I I wanted to see it earlier. Right. Um, So that was sort of like a punishing, just get to the end kind of thing. But um, uh, so there's also that, you know, like you have to kind of adapt or I guess I adapt my writing practice to also external things. Like I only have a week to do this. That means I have to work in a different way. Yep. It does. It, it's sort of, it's a, it's a moldable thing. Yeah. And I don't know if there's an author I translate who I adore and she has like from what I understand, she has an incredibly regular practice, the sort of nine to noon morning writing and then afternoon money work kind of ideal model. And I really, I really envy that. But also, I don't know. I moved to Berlin five, six years ago. There's a lot of energy that goes into moving into a new country. Um, there's just a lot of, I don't know that I have a very, very stable life in some ways, but I also have quite a chaotic life. So I think my writing practice reflects the kind of, I don't know, jumbledness of my, of my general everyday existence. Yeah. And I don't think a writing practice works if it only works when it goes perfectly. So true. So true. Cause then, yeah, that sounds like me making excuses for myself. Why I can't write right now. Exactly. It's like, why well, I don't yeah. have the kimono. <laughs> I'm wondering, there was a a passage we discussed at the beginning, and just, I feel like we're talking about kind of the, the sort of behind the scenes of bringing this topic into literature, but I feel like it would really benefit um, to have you read a little bit from the book. Absolutely. Which bit do you want to read? Do you want more or do you want to hear? I think the bit from... um, from when Echo and Orly are are creating an experience for somebody. I think it's because I think you can talk really abstractly about, oh, we're putting this sexual, um, this sort of approach to sex into a book. But I mean, that could be handled so many different ways. So I think mm-hmm. if we get a, put a little bit of a, 
a passage to it. I think that would help ground Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, I think, yeah, because we're talking about abstract fantasies and um, the sort of absurdity of fantasy was also something that I was interested in examining. Like, um, gosh, you know, people want all sorts of things done to them. Uh, what was I listening to? I was listening to the Erste's podcast and Asa Kira was on and she apparently used to work as a dominatrix and one of her clients wanted her to essentially spend his hour like wiggling his teeth and saying, hmm, that looks bad. We're going to have to pull it. This one is terrible. We're going to have to pull that tooth out. I was just thinking, if you kind of explain that fantasy to someone or just hearing it, it, it it's so easy to kind of giggle or, or whatever. But I think when you're in the moment, then you can kind of understand the seriousness or maybe even really get into the dynamic of like, how hot this must be for that person, you know? Um, I wanted to kind of see if I could draw the reader into that sort of space, both an absurd fantasy, but also what it must feel like for the person in, in the throes of what for them is an ecstatic moment. Anyway, now I've given her a super long introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, read it because I want to say things about okay, that good. after yes. too. Um, so this is Echo and Orly in Orly's sanctuary. After that, Orly's house became the house of my imagination, awash with men. They arrived with fantasies, most of which only made sense in action. This is what we were doing today. The client had fallen in a crowded nightclub and all the women were so busy grooving in their high heels they didn't notice. They thought he was the floor. Orly and I were all the women. I struggled to keep my balance. She held my hands. I pressed into the balls of my feet, straining to stay on tiptoe for balance and bounce, shimmy, bounce. Each beat, we winded him. Each beat was a struggle to stand on his loose flesh, my soles stuttering across bone. The barrel of his chest, my ankle gave and I slipped. The stiletto slid down his shoulder and I found my footing on the hardwood floor. I could have broken his neck ended him, ruined everything for her. Blood rose from the abrasion and rolled down his white skin. He didn't seem to notice. Orly helped me back up, but I couldn't move. The give of his body, the give of his bones, as I struggled to be steady, careful to avoid his spine, but all I could see was a dead man, mouth ajar, fat red cheeks squished to the floor. He was so still, I couldn't keep dancing. You're bleeding, I said. One blue eye opened, and he shuddered when he whispered, just keep going. Orly and I read their introductory letters, their questionnaires. She listened to them on the phone, noting the details of the woman they had in mind. What had Famico said? We accentuate the parts we find pleasing. We drew them with broad strokes. The lipstick, the pencil skirt, the glasses, the suggestion of threat, the corseted waist and elongated leg. We focused on the parts they found pleasing, let pleasure render the perfect whole. Sometimes words led them only so far. I want to submit to you. What does that mean to you? I want you to be in control. What would you like me to do? Show me how inferior I am to you. Defile me. Orly needed specifics. When she couldn't push through, she'd hold their heads in her lap and rock them into a space of surrender, a gentle hypnosis, asking them to remember the first time they'd felt the desire to submit. To whom did they want to submit? What had that person made them do? What had they wanted the person to do? 
Often they'd wanted something that was impossible for them to say, but once they said it, everything was simple because we knew what to do. Sometimes they wanted to be watched while Orly worked on them, and I saw them go still, saw their breathing change, their faces in ecstasy, a threshold crossed, beyond fits of self-loathing or laughter, beyond their pleas to mommy or daddy. Where did they trust her to take them when they allowed themselves to let go? Great. Thanks. I think that I think that just helps to kind of illustrate what's happening because I think something that um, I think about with the idea of the absurd fantasy with the the sort of idea of wanting the threat of the tooth being pulled before you read the piece as well is that so much of I think how things get categorized is the language and the approach that's used to talk about it and so someone finding out they might need a tooth pulled could be a really horrifying experience that has absolutely no electrical charge, but the, the sort of context in which it happens can change it completely. And I think also the way that we talk about sexual preferences, um, the things that are hot, the things that are exciting, uh, can get them categorized in either the literature section or somewhere else entirely. And I, I just think it's, I think it's just such an important thing to think about what are we allowed to write about and what aren't we allowed mm. to write about and how? Well, I think, I mean, with specifically Orly's approach to her dominatrix practice, I think she feels very much that she has a, you know, provides a kind of healing service. And I think, I think about, Orly's work very much in terms of like any other body work, you know, um, massage or crystal healing or even Reiki, you know, where you enter a space and you give yourself to a person who promises to have a kind of energetic exchange with you. Um, and, you know, thinking, you know, other spaces might be, you know, a, a therapist where you speak, but I, the boundary gets kind of funny and blurry when you talk about sort of BDSM as a healing practice or, um, I don't know, I was super, super, super nervous, uh, when I was in London launching the book a couple weeks ago and walked past a massage place and I was just like, okay, if they have time, they have to take me. And I have to say, like, I, I didn't see so much difference between sort of my intention with that massage, which was I needed to go in there and like have somebody in a nonverbal space, kind of like smooth the anxiety out of my body to give me a fighting chance to like relax a little bit. And, and in a way, I, I think this is, this is Orly's approach as well, to an extent. She works in a different sphere. She works with erotic energy, you know, but it's still, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Do you know that um, Erica Lust's work? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. There's, there's one that I keep thinking of in this context, she has, uh, for those listening who don't know about her, she has a project called X Confessions and people can send in fantasies that they have and they will choose some of them and they make erotic films out of it. And, and one of them is a woman who wants to visit her dom, um, like she's going in for a spa appointment basically. And so the, the setting is really charming. It's like she comes in, she's parked her bicycle. She comes in, some, some woman is leaving. I think my favorite part of the whole thing is there's a woman leaving who kind of does a, like a kisses her hand and waves it at the receptionist, like, bye, <laughs> like she's at the nail salon and leaves. And then she goes in and it's like a full on, very consensual. Um, but 
she's going in to be a sub for an hour. And then she goes back out and she's got her basket and her like, you know, loaf of French bread in her basket and biking off. And um, it is a really interesting thing to think of like, oh, what if this was just a, a like a service appointment, like going to your shrink or or going to a, a massage? It's it's yeah, fascinating. I mean, seeking out altered states of consciousness as well, like accessing ourselves in different ways. I mean, it's, it's that really, right? And I think books can do that as well. I mean, that's sort of what's happening. You're, you're having a whole experience in your mind as you're reading the book. Mm. And that's what totally. they allow for. Well, I could, so, I could go on and on and on, but I think, I think we've at least gotten them. Everyone should read the book and then we can have all kinds of fun conversations about this in the comments. <laughs> um, which you can find at, at secretlibrarypodcast.com. So please come over and comment. And let's keep talking about this topic because I think it's just not, we don't even know how sort of what we're making taboo and what we're saying isn't allowed to be a part of what we're writing until someone like you takes a risk and writes something and we think, oh, right, that hasn't been around. Let's bring it in. Let's bring it into the conversation. So... I'm so glad you feel that it's so fresh. And if I may, I, I mean, I'm on book tour for the next, well, sort of essentially through June. And what I'm really hoping is to continue this conversation online a bit. Um, and I'll be sort of chronicling the book tour on Instagram. And the hashtag I'm using is hashtag permission to connect. So if there are readers who are reading the book and are kind of interested and sharing their thoughts. Um, that's a really good way to do it because I am really, really interested in seeing what kind of dialogue this book, um, might create. Oh, I think there's going to be a lot. Also, if you come over, we'll have links to Saskia and links to the book and everything, um, as part of the show notes. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. This was really wonderful. And I know everyone's going to enjoy hearing what we got up to. Oh, thank you so much, Caroline. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.